Good morning and welcome to episode 822 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by the Play Index at baseballreference.com. I'm Sam Miller along with Ben Lindbergh of 538. Hey, Ben. Hello. Later in the show, George will be talking to Susan Slusser of the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, And uh, in the meantime, uh, Ben and I will be talking to Claire McNear of SB Nation and the author of this year's A's essay in the Baseball Prospectus Annual. Hello, Claire. Hey there. How are you? Doing well. How about you? Pretty good. So your essay, which I loved, one of my very favorites, was about the fans who hate Billy Bean. And one of the reasons that I liked it so much is because I have not spent much of my life thinking about how there must be fans, A's fans, who hate Billy Bean. We spend so much time and have for the past decade and a half kind of lionizing him as a you know revolutionary figure in the field. But of course, every GM is despised you know in his hometown uh, to some degree. And uh, Billy Bean is no exception. So I wanted to know, because the A's, uh, first I'll add a couple of unnecessary clauses before I say what I want to know. The A's are coming off of really kind of their second golden age, maybe in a sense, of the Bean, of the Billy Bean era from 2012 to 2014. They were a team that was very successful in the regular season. And maybe even more than the first run, uh, in the early 2000s, kind of unexpectedly successful. They were crushing Pakoda uh, even before the Royals were crushing Pakoda and, uh, you know, winning a, a ton of games uh, with a roster that nobody necessarily thought was all that great. And then on the flip side, they're also coming off the worst year of the Bean era by wins, by winning percentage, and, uh, you know, an incredibly disappointing finish last year. So I'm curious, I, I like I said, every GM has his critics, uh, particularly locally, but how has the criticism changed kind of over the last decade? Because I'm sure there was, you know, during the, the, the years where Moneyball was new and novel, I'm sure there was a backlash specifically about his role, you know, in that book, in that movement, in that narrative. But, you know, the last 10 years, he's been doing a job. And uh, so I'm curious how fans in your uh, exposure to them uh, feel about the way he has done that job. Yeah. So, I mean, I I will say that I was kind of surprised as well to sort of find so many fans who just hate him just and want to talk about it because, you know, he is really worshipped and it's not a popular opinion in baseball to, to hate Billy Bean. And I will say that the angrier the fan is, the more likely they are to bring up Brad Pitt. <laughs> <by a lot. laughs> so I, I think what's happened over, over the last year, especially is um, it's kind of shifted from being this sort of fringe thing to, to, you know, kind of have lost patience with Billy Bean to be a little bit more mainstream. I, I think that, 2015 was a year that a lot of Ace fans sort of lost patience with his with his particular brand of tinkering, and he kind of, for a lot of people in Oakland, went from being this like zany maverick GM who makes brave trades to like a zany maverick GM who just can't stop himself from making trades. Which you know, it's you know, there are different ways to view that, but um, yeah, I, I think that uh, there are a lot of people in Oakland who saw the 2012. 2013-2014 seasons and got so excited and then had their hearts broken who are just exhausted to be going into the next big Billy Bean rebuild. So do you think any of the criticisms of the people that you spoke to were merited? I mean, were you convinced? You know, I, so I think I, I talked to a lot of people who have a lot of, uh, you know, rather... <laughs> 
extreme views, um, and you know, some are more persuasive than others. I think there are a lot of people who were eager to look at what happened, you know, the trades he made late in the 2014 season and what happened in, in 2015 and were eager to write off the sort of, well, I mean, you even said it was sort of surprising how successful they were um, in those years and write it off as, as a fluke. You know, it was not his wizardry. It was not some grand plan that he had. It was just something that sort of happened. And they, I mean, I think with any good team, that's always somewhat true. I, I think that the Donaldson trade was something that a lot of people were and are very bothered by. And I think that there's some merit to uh, the ways in which they were bothered by it. Um, I think that that trade in particular kind of punctured a hole in this idea of, um, you know, Billy Bean as a staff minded robot who just looks at the numbers and doesn't let any of the kind of romantic baseball stuff get in the way. Because by all accounts, that trade had a lot to do with, you know, more personal issues. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that there's something to the frustration. Yeah, it's, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it sort of seems like uh, you could always, if you if you want to, um, you could make a case against kind of Bean's worldview or Bean's idea about how to run a, a franchise, especially one with uh, those budget limitations over a multi-year period. And the Donaldson trade, in a sense, is different because you can actually be uh, you can object to it just in terms of it being a bad trade. Not that you know, not oh here it, it's not so much here goes you know here here go the A's again trading all the players we like, but wow that's all they got. What's the plan? Why trade Donaldson? I mean, it sort of felt more like they missed on how good Donaldson was going to be, and they missed on how good. Uh, Lori and and the rest of the trade package were necessarily coming back. And so it sort of maybe, and that's maybe the story of the whole season last year is that it opens up this new objection to him as, you know, being, you know, not quite invincible or not quite uh, infallible on the merits of the moves themselves. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So we talked, uh, you know, as the year went on about how amazing it was that the A's were losing so many games when they didn't seem to be that bad a team. Like for a large part of the year, they were, you know, outscoring their opponents. They were doing all sorts of like great things if you drill down to the individual performance level, but they weren't winning. And so even looking back at last season, you could say, well, it was their worst season. You could also say, well, they had the true talent of a pretty good team. Does that argument go anywhere with an A's fan? Is there any sense that they just got unlucky last year? I think that that was easier to believe earlier in the season. I, I think that as, you know, as time wore, it was just a grim season. Like, it was just really hard, I think, to have fun watching those games. It was a season where, you know, it, there just wasn't a lot of hope, and, and they were never really told to have very much hope, and they weren't given much of a reason. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was grim. And and I think that it kind of very quickly became all right. Well, we're you know he raised the team. Here we go again. The uh, the the A's. I mean, one of the the achievements of Billy Bean's tenure, of course, is how many winning seasons they've had, how many playoff appearances they've had uh, on their budget. But another thing that's notable about them before last year is that they've never really been horrible. Horrible. The fewest games they had won was seventy four. And when you look at other teams at that payroll level. Uh, there's almost inevitably over the course of a decade or two decades, uh, you know, a few years in the 60s, a few years where they're just completely hopeless uh, to watch. Uh, and you could say, well, that is uh, a strength that they've managed to maintain a, a decent level of performance, even when they've been rebuilding. 
And of course, you could also make the opposite case that in this era, we tend to see teams that recognize when they're not going to win, put them, you know, go sink really low uh, in order to put themselves in a position to win more later. And Jason Wojciechowski's hypothesis has always been that the A's ownership would not tolerate a 60 win season the way that some ownerships might, and that it's just impractical for the A's in their in their market, in their situation uh, to dip that low. Do you think that's true? If they did do a full rebuild, a teardown, like we see a lot of other teams do, uh, would there be consequences that you know there might not be for the Cubs or for the Brewers or for any number of other teams? I, I'm not sure. I, I think that at this point, it, it's hard to imagine the A's ownership sort of rebuking Bean in a big way. Um, I mean, he'll be starting this year in a different role, but by all accounts, the Billy Bean David Force relationship is expected to be much, much the same as it was. I think that for a lot of fans, it was easier to sort of be proud of this overperforming, if not excellent, or not consistently excellent team. For, for many years, and in recent years, it's just sort of been... Well, the, the thing I kept hearing is that we have Billy Bean, who's who's so famous, and he's famous as a genius, and um, he changed the game of baseball, and yet he never has gotten them any championships. Um, and that's something that has kind of begun to obsess many people in Oakland, that there's this incredible baseball figure, we're told, um, and, and yet there are no World Series. Do you think the A's have a recognizable strategy right now? Is there a way that their roster is constructed or something they do in games that makes them uniquely athletics? Like a few years ago, maybe people talked about their chemistry or Sam wrote about their chemistry or or their platooning or, you know, there's always been some A's thing, fly ball hitters. There's always some way in which supposedly they're breaking the system. Is there a way that they're doing that today? is, I think, a little bit um, inscrutable in a lot of ways. I, I'm not sure that there is, and I think that there's a little bit of a sense of waiting for the other shoe to drop. I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that there. I, th- I think it's, it's hard to say at this point. What is the other shoe? I, I don't. I mean, you know, when you're, when you're in a rebuild, right? There's always something that you're going to build into, um, and it's not really clear what that is going to be at this juncture. Um, presumably, there is there is a master plan somewhere, but um, it's a little bit unclear at this point. And you wrote in your essay that Bean has seemed to draw the line at Sonny Gray and said that he won't trade him. And of course, you never know. That could just be posturing or negotiating tactic or leverage or whatever it is. But if that's the case, why do you think that is? I mean, we've seen certainly being in the past trade good young starting pitchers. What is it about Gray that would make him want to hold on? Yeah, I mean, Gray is an interesting case because, um, you know, Gray's been saying that he wants to stay in Oakland and there's been talk of a big, shiny extension for many years. He'll be there through 2021. or And he was, in many ways, this kind of lone bright spot of a really miserable season. And, you know, he shows every sign of getting even better in, in the next year. But I don't know, maybe maybe Bean has, has begun to change a little bit. Maybe the kind of shock of having a truly crappy team in a really miserable season and the kind of, I think, increasingly vocally frustrated fan base and presumably, to some degree at least, frustrated ownership has kind of pushed him to rethink it. it. You know, it could be that he looked at the Donaldson trade and, and, you know, didn't think that that was his best move that he's ever made. So it could be that we're going to see a very 
unbilly bean like move with Sunny Gray. Or it could be that Sunny Gray is gonna get better and better and, you know, be more and more valuable and fans are gonna love him more and more and then he's gonna get traded once again. I mean, it is a business. Ultimately the A's are a business and maybe even more than some other teams they are a business because they seem to have smaller margins than other teams and Bean is in his position has to care about that business too he can't be you know he's not like the necessarily like the manager on the field who can be totally focused on uh you know getting the runner over to third he has to think about the health of the franchise and you could imagine somebody saying well you know geez i mean if we traded sunny gray right now that would just be uh, one step too many we would lose too many people it would it would be too controversial but i wonder do you think that it matters how much the a's fans like kind of like the A's philosophy because it seems like they don't really draw whether they win or lose. They don't really draw no matter what they do. There just seems to be a fairly low ceiling on what they're going to draw regardless. And I don't know if that means that there's a kind of similarly immobile floor and that it doesn't really matter. If they do something unpopular, do you think it costs them dollars or at the end of the day, is it just going to be like, well, you know, the, the diehards are going to show up and well, at this point we have to expect that the others aren't. Yeah, I actually, I think I just saw something from Jason that sort of got to that point, which is that he said that, you know, everyone who was already going to cancel their, their season tickets has, has done so by this point, which I think is pretty true. I, I think that there aren't a whole lot of people who are, who are going to, to bail on the team at this point. Um, and I think it's worth noting that as much as I talk to a lot of very angry fans who've had it with Billy Bean and, you know, think that he has no business running a baseball team at all, um, you know, these were mostly season ticket holders and have been for years and years and, and will be um, regardless of what happens. So I I don't know that um, the team is going to face much additional kind of retribution from its fans or or correspondingly that it's very concerned that it will. Having said that, I think that, I mean, like the woman who cut my hair broke down crying after Cespedes was traded. Um, <laughs> and I, I think that there's a lot of, I think that there, there's been a sort of boiling point reached in Oakland um, in terms of, you know, fan dissatisfaction. But having said that, I don't know that that's going to affect, you know, how many people come to games and, and how the team operates. The other thing is that it's a franchise that is actively trying to leave the city. I mean, that has been for years trying to leave the city, the fans that show up. So I don't know if once you've once you've broadcast that fact so loudly and so repeatedly, I don't know how much Sonny Gray moves the emotional needle. Like they've probably already negotiated this like tense relationship that they're going to have with you. And if they're showing up they're going to yeah, show up now. I, I think that's totally true. And, and yeah. you know, I mean, this is a franchise that for years um, made clear that its dream scenario was to go to San Jose, which is about as un-Oakland as any place in the world. Yeah, I mean, you could almost make the case that moving to Portland or moving to some other part uh, place across the country would be less of a slap in the face to some people in Oakland just because of the, you know, the, the local politics. Now, the A's fans are also, I mean, the A's fans might be my favorite fans in baseball. Like when you're actually out at the park, there's not a ton of them, but they're loud and they show up and they get, uh, you know, they're there for no reason other than because they love the team and they want to see a win. And there's something really endearing about that. They're, I really love the A's fans. They're great, great, great fans. And I'm sure that in happier days or 
Uh, maybe even in sad days, there are also things that they love about Billy Bean or that they love about the front office. Are there and what are they? I mean, uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's a whole lot of fun to have this sort of tinkering madman, um, as, as some people might portray him, who's not afraid to treat somebody like Cespedes, you know, because he thinks it's going to help DAs. Or um, I think you could never say that Billy Bean is boring. And that's that can be a lot of fun to watch. It's more fun when it's successful and bringing in wins. And I think that as much as the A's seem or kind of feel at times to be a sort of downtrodden franchise that's sort of ignored by MLB um, or by the Greater Bay Area, they, they do have this superstar in their midst. And I think that there is, you know, he was played by Brad Pitt. He is a name that everybody knows. And there's something fun with that, too, you know, that they have this, this in-house star. The A's went really quickly from having one of the best bullpens in baseball to having one of the worst bullpens in baseball, and in many cases with some of the same pitchers in place. And last year, it was speculated that one of the reasons for their underperformance of their run differential was their record in one-run games, which was a terrible 19-35. and 35. And so it, it seems like Bean has tried to devote some money to that problem this offseason with Madsen and and others, and there are guys coming back from injury. And do you think that helped? Was that really a root of one of last year's team's problems? And is it still a problem? And where is Billy Bean right now in respect to paying for relief help, which is something that he you know, famously exploited other teams' tendency to do earlier in his career, but lately has seemed to sort of join the crowd? I think that it would be hard for the team to perform worse. And I think that um, in that particular sense, and um, I think that Bean did go out and get help. Um, and I think that, you know, people having people like Doolittle back uh, will be fantastic. I would be shocked to see Bean spend a bunch on that right now, just because he has, I, I could see him waiting and seeing how, how this settles um, and maybe making a big midseason move. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that the team will will be much better in, in those sorts of scenarios, if only because it would be hard to be worse. But I think that there's a lot to be optimistic about. So uh, my last question, among this subculture of Bean's uh, critics, what would you guess would be the reaction if the A's do win the World Series, uh, if he does bring home a title? Would everything be completely forgiven and would those same people be, um, you know, down at the city council lobbying for a statue to be put up? Or would the criticism even outlast that sort of success? I mean, I, I think it goes back to, to what you were saying earlier, which is that there are always going to be critics, right? I mean, it's it's baseball. Nobody's, you're never going to please everyone. Even, even the World Series winning team is never going to please everyone, at least the next year. I think he could do a lot. To, to win over a whole lot of people. I think that for the most part, these are people who, who want to see a championship above all, more than they want to be vindicated about Billy Bean and have him be fired and kicked to the curb. Um, I think they would much rather see a World Series victory. So I think that, yeah, a victory would do a lot. But whether it would totally vindicate everything, I'm not sure that it would. You know, whether it would prove that the Bean methodology was right all along as it's evolved, um, I'm not sure. But it would because there have been things that have worked and things that haven't. But I think he could he could go a long way. All right. Well, we will end, as we always do, by asking the guests for a win total prediction. So how many games do you think the A's will win in 2016? 
I would say, uh, oh man, let's say 88. Well, that's optimistic. You think they're going to be a good team? Yeah, maybe. Okay. I wasn't expecting it because Dakota is so down on them. It's spring training. Okay. Well, thank you, Claire, for coming on. Thank you. And you can find Claire's writing at SB Nation and other places. You can find her on Twitter at Claire underscore McNear. And coming up after the break, you will hear George Bissell talking to Susan Slusser, the San Francisco Chronicle beat writer for the A's. Welcome back to Effectively Wild. I'm George Bissell of Baseball Prospectus. Joining me to preview the 2016 Oakland Athletics is Susan Slusser, who's been covering the team for the San Francisco Chronicle since 1999. You can follow her on Twitter, at Susan Slusser. That's three S's in Slusser. Susan, first of all, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule. It's great to have you on the show. My pleasure, George. Thanks for having me on. At a press conference late last week, the Oakland Raiders announced a one-year deal with a two-year option for 2017 and 18 as well to remain at O.Co. Coliseum. Even if you're not a football fan, you're probably aware that the Raiders unsuccessfully attempted to relocate to Los Angeles earlier this offseason. Their owner, Mark Davis, actually called the A's out in the press conference, so to speak, saying that they needed to make a commitment to Oakland so that the plans for a new stadium project can move forward. What type of impact does that latest news have on the athletics' immediate and long-term future stadium-wise in Oakland? Because that seems to be the biggest issue facing this team long-term. Well, you know, the A's and Major League Baseball have been very clear about the fact that they see that Coliseum site as the best potential spot for a baseball stadium. You know what? It's pretty easy to figure out from all this posturing from the A's and the Raiders that neither one of them really wants to share the site I think Mark Davis would love it if somebody would pay for a stadium for him. The A's would be okay with privately funding their own stadium there. Uh, they, when they were looking at San Jose, that was part of the deal. They were gonna, you know, they would get the land and they would build the stadium themselves privately. I think they're okay with doing that at the Coliseum. Very unclear uh, what the city of Oakland uh, would be able to provide for Mark Davis for putting up a stadium. They keep hinting that it's essentially nothing besides maybe some infrastructure costs and obviously the land, which is already there. Uh, I'm not sure if anybody wants to have a football stadium and a standalone baseball stadium there along with the arena. And the arena, it doesn't sound like there's any plans to get rid of the arena. So I don't see how you fit three stadiums there. A lot of people behind the scenes, certainly the people that cover uh, the Oakland government for our paper, are under the impression that uh, Oakland would really, if they got to pick one, I think they would probably go with the A's. It makes a lot of sense. There's far more dates, and they've really been the best tenants. You know, the, the Raiders up and left for a while, and, and when they came back, they <laughs> all but destroyed the Coliseum, really, for baseball, and at least in terms of the looks and uh, with some of the infrastructure. Absolutely. It's surprising news given how close the Raiders actually were to relocating the Los Angeles this offseason. So. Some of Mark Davis's comments today were actually a little bit laughable because he was like, they have to make a show, they have to make a commitment. Well, you're the guy that's been talking to L.A. and whose team actually had moved to L.A. <laughs> so it, I don't, the A's aren't going to say anything, certainly on the record like that, but you've got to think they're thinking like, who are you saying this? Well, that's a lot of gall. Well, that's why they're the Raiders, right? <laughs> Exactly. 
All right, let's turn our attention to the Oakland Athletics on the field issues. The most significant uh, move that Billy Bean, who's now Oakland's executive vice president of baseball operations, no longer the GM, that title belongs to David Forrest. Uh, the biggest move they've made in the last year was trading Josh Donaldson at Toronto. He went on to win the American League MVP and helped the Jays end a 22-year postseason drought. That trade came on the heels of a pair of win-now deals during the 2014 season, which ultimately ended with that loss to the Royals in the American League wildcard game in which the A's dealt for John Lester, Jeff Samarja. They gave up Joanna Cespedes and Addison Russell. Do you think that these three trades merely represent extreme cases of good process and bad results, or are they representative of a change from the way that Bean and the A's have operated in the past that seemingly uh, backfired on them in this occasion? I think the first trade, the Samarja trade, was one that the A's would have made in, in almost any year with uh, being in first place and going down the stretch and feeling like they needed to shore up their pitching even giving up a, an obvious star in the making like Addison Russell, that's something that they had have done in other years. Uh, the fact that they also got Jason Hamill in that deal, and then Jason Hamill was so awful that first month he was with Oakland, I think they suddenly decided that they needed another starter. And that's where they kind of changed their emphasis from what you usually see with the A's. And I think that's specifically related to the fact that the Billy Bean teams are kind of known now for not being able to get out of the first round of the playoffs. That move to add John Lester was specifically a move to try to get them out of the first round of the playoffs. Now, of course, if you don't win the wild card game and, and don't get out of that one, that's uh, it's just that's not uh, going to work too well. And they traded their cleanup header, you know, their biggest middle of the order bat. And I, I just don't think that you're going to see many teams now looking to move a significant bat like that with essentially a month left in the season. That really seemed as if it had turned everything around for the A's in their lineup. You add to the Donaldson deal on top of that, that's, uh, I think that was a crusher, kind of losing the middle of the order. They also traded Brandon off, so that was, a, that was exactly the middle of their order gone before the start of the next spring. So what direction is this franchise ultimately headed in? While they do have some dynamic young talent, most notably Sonny Gray, at the front of the rotation. On the surface, their offseason moves appear to be a quasi-attempt to reload, so to speak, and remain competitive, skimming some veteran free agent talent without transitioning to a, a full-blown Astros or Cubs-style teardown. Is this a team that can get back to the level where they were in 2012 through 14, in which they made the playoffs in three straight years, or are they most likely headed for that rebuild in the near future? Well, it's such an interesting question. It's so hard to ever discount a Billy Bean team. And David Force, obviously, has always been a part of that. And you kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier. They're, they're still working sort of the same parameters they always have, working as a team. And when you look at that 2012 team, the first of the three playoff teams, there was some luck involved, certainly. Some guys hit that, um, you know, maybe nobody expected Brandon Moss. Josh Donaldson converted from catcher to third base. You know, things happened right. I think... What clearly what they would like is for a similar scenario this coming year. I think they feel good about a lot of different pieces, especially the pitching. And when you look at their team last year, they actually had a positive run differential for much of the season, very much into the positives. For a long time, it was that bullpen being such a disaster all year that I think they feel really sunk them, and they've addressed that. You know, I, I don't know if they have enough beyond that to contend but I think they feel like if they'd had that last year they might have been able to, to certainly at least stick around and, and uh, to when started things started to matter into September 
So, you know, we'll see. They they also felt as if they had some bad clubhouse chemistry. Some of that has been addressed. I don't know how that necessarily impacts performance, but it definitely was an issue unusual for a team like the A's that is very much uh, – you know, a numbers-oriented team and more looking at advanced metrics rather than sort of the more esoteric things like chemistry. But that's that was something that they've even said on the record was was something they wanted to address, which is which that's unusual. I know Johnny Gomes would agree with you on chemistry uh, being a big part <laughs> of the game. <laughs> He's a reason that that 2012 team did so well. Certainly, he would tell you that. And many, I think Billy Bean has even said like he didn't believe in chemistry except for Johnny Gomes. <sighs> Can't doubt him there. I want to shift away from some of the darkness and maybe focus on some of the brighter spots with the A's uh, heading into 2016. And a guy who I want to talk about is Danny Valencia. Uh, Oakland picked up the veteran third baseman off waivers from Toronto in August. He hit 284 with 11 home runs over the final 47 games. Uh, his reputation was sort of cemented as a platoon lefty masher. He, uh, he hit right-handed pitching consistently, really, though, for the first time in his career last year. And now, ironically... He's the guy replacing not only Donaldson, but also the headliner coming back to Oakland in the Donaldson trade and Brett Lurie, who they traded to Chicago this offseason. What exactly do the A's have in the 31-year-old going forward? Uh, Because it seems like he he sort of turned a corner last year, and he's going into spring training as the undisputed uh, option at the hot corner for this team. Yeah, it's it's really kind of a funny situation because one of the things that has worked so well for the A's in this last sort of five-year stretch has been the platoon thing. And here's a guy who you think is the ultimate platoon-type player, and they've committed to him full-time. He he really opened their eyes. I think they feel like he can be a guy who hits for power. Uh, He is a little older on a young team. You know, maybe a a late bloomer along the, the lines sort of a Brandon Moss, but Moss stayed really pretty much in a, in a platoon role until that last year in Oakland. So uh, this is a little bit of a new thing for the A's. Brett Laurie, you know, that I think one of the pluses with him was certainly that he could also play second base. When they decided that they wanted to bring back Jed Lowry, I think that also really weighed heavily into this decision to stick with Danny Valencia and move Brett Laurie. Shortstop Marcus Semien, he committed 18 errors in the first two months of 2015, but his defense improved noticeably down the stretch. Coincidentally, not long after they brought in former Ranger manager and longtime Oakland coach Ron Washington late in May, how much credit should we give Washington? We know he had a similar impact on sort of the Moneyball era A's with guys like Tejada, Chavez, and perhaps most famously, uh, Scott Hatterberg. But how much credit should we give Washington and also maybe Semyon for improving uh, his defense? And do you think that that improvement is a harbinger of things to come or sort of a mirage from late last season? Uh, yeah. Behind the scenes, the, the A's felt very confident in Semyon all year long. And then I, I I started to hear some signs that like maybe there were a few things, a few people that were wavering on him a little bit towards the end of the season, which is maybe one of those reasons that they bring Jed Lowry back in. Uh, but he definitely put in the work, and I'm going to give him the credit. First of all, I think Ron Washington would, too. Uh, he he had cleaned things up noticeably by the end of the season and just looked so much more comfortable. Now, he is by no means a natural-looking shortstop. He kind of makes things look difficult. Scouts come in and they cringe a little bit. If he's making just the plays he needs to make, the A's will be fine with that because he can hit. 
there's no doubt about it. And I think they'd be thrilled. It's not as if Jed Lowry is, you know, a, a gold glove shortstop type. He's, he's competent, but he's not going to be, you know, one of the top five or six in the game. So I think he's just a little bit of insurance and Simeon definitely working with Washington. And let's not discount the work that Mike Gallego did with him early. I, I think he was on the upswing, but, you know, the fact that Lowry's back is maybe shows that, the, not everybody is completely on board with that. We could see a switch. I, I'm not. I don't think so. I think he's just going to keep getting better there. Jed Lowry is fascinating. If you go look through his career transaction log, he's just sort of bounced back and forth a couple of times now uh, between Oakland and Houston. So they both love him, apparently. Apparently, it's uh, <laughs> something about the the Lowry. Uh, outfielder Josh Raddick, he's quietly evolved into a, a real formidable hitter in the heart of the Oakland lineup. He's cut back the strikeouts while hitting for power and posted a two eighty seven true average in nearly 600 plate appearances last year. He's 29 now. Is he someone who the A's are looking to rebuild that offense around for the next few years? Or would he maybe be a more attractive guy as a, a trade tip uh, for a potential uh, playoff team? Well, I actually really thought that he would be a guy they would look to move this last offseason. He fits the profile of the guys that they were moving like crazy the year before. They said outright, which they almost never do, we are not trading him, we're hanging on to him. He's a guy we would consider signing to an extension. Now, that will only happen if they get terms they feel are are beneficial to them, of course, which is is how it should be, and certainly with the A's, that's that's generally how it goes. So I'm not going to say that that's necessarily going to happen. This could be one of those things where they wait to see where they are you know, mid-season-ish, and if they're well out of it again, he is a guy I think that they could move if he's having a nice season because he does so many things well and really has been their best, kind of quietly their best all-around player with the uh, exception of when Stephen Vogt, you know, got hot for the first half and was an all-star. Reddick really has been, you know, his numbers have always been there, even when the power dropped off because, in part, large part because of the defense. Now, the defense is a little bit on the wane. He's had some arm injuries. His, uh, you know, that cannon of an arm is not quite as good as it was. He thinks that's going to come back. Uh, I, I could see, you know, especially given his age, that maybe the A's do look to keep him around, certainly a couple more years if they can. There's never any guarantees. Uh, the A's do not give out long-term contracts very often, especially after so many of them went south with injuries. On the pitching side of things, if you could describe the Oakland A's rotation in one word, what would that be? It's it's young. There's no doubt about that. Um, a lot of promise. That's more than one. <laughs> more than one word. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have limited young you to is one my word. Top choice. Yeah, uh, that, promise is my second word. I you know, there were we saw so many flashes of good things from guys, uh, but many, many growing pains. Kendall Graveman at times really looked like he could be, you know, a two, three starter kind of guy in the American League. Um, Chris Bassett went healthy after he (laughs) kind of figured out some mechanical things and and got his head on straight, uh, was fantastic. They really believe in him. So, uh, but you know, they're, they're, they're the A's. So they've got some, you know, they've always got some interesting things up their sleeve the rich hill signing i don't think anybody saw that coming but you know for not very much money and for a year not much of a commitment uh definitely worth a gander maybe along the lines of what they did with bartolo cologne several years ago and and with mm. scott casimir so they, they like to keep it interesting um one wild card is jared parker who was obviously sensational before he had his second tommy john and then blew out his elbow in that um, horrible fracture last year as he was coming back. They keep talking about him as a starter. 
you have to wonder after two Tommy Johns and a fractured elbow if maybe relief might not be the safer course. But that's a world of talent there, so I think they're certainly going to at least take a look at him there. A plethora of options, no doubt, for Bob Melvin uh, to choose from this spring. You touched on the bullpen earlier. Uh, they were 28th in bullpen ERA. The only team teams that were worse than them were Atlanta and Colorado, and you can probably imagine why. One of the offseason additions they made uh, was Liam Hendricks. Now, I personally have an affinity for obscure relief pitchers, and that's led me to obsess over him for, uh, on more than one occasion over the last year. <laughs> His average fastball velocity, it spiked in, in the mid-90s after he moved to the Toronto bullpen. He posted a sub-3 ERA. The A's gave up a, a pretty significant chip in Jesse Chavez to acquire him this offseason. What type of role does Oakland envision for Hendricks in 2016, especially considering the injury histories with Ryan Madsen, who they also signed uh, as a free agent, and Sean Doolittle, who struggled to stay healthy? Well, I think that's going to be the key. I think right now he's kind of like the number four guy in the bullpen. But, uh, you know, he, he will move up depending on workloads, injuries, etc. You're right, the, the A's brought up the fact that the, the average fastball was way up, towards the, especially towards the later end of the season. Uh, and, you know, you give up a guy like Jesse Chavez, but in terms of age and in terms of money and service time, a huge swing there. So uh, that was a classic Oakland A's move. And really necessary, because again, this the bullpen was the number one thing they had to address. Madsen is a great pickup, but yes, he does have a pretty significant injury history, and and uh, you know a big gap of time he was not even in the game. So a little, maybe even a little bit of an unknown still, even after that sensational year last year. John Axford, a long track record. Both he and Madsen have closed. I think that was by design, given Sean Doolittle's injury history, which is more than extensive. So, mm. uh, you know, I, this is one of those where I think they feel like if they keep kind of two of those three healthy and they've got Hendricks, I think they feel pretty good about that, that back into the bullpen. Everybody loves prospects, and the Oakland A's have a pretty special one, Franklin Barreto, who they picked up in the Josh Donaldson deal. Uh, at Baseball Prospectus, we ranked him number 26 overall on our 2016 Top 100 Prospect list. What's the outlook for him going forward, and how high is the organization on him? Because he had a pretty outstanding year last year in Stockton and high A. He did. Uh, you know, it's it's clear he would go to double A this year. Um, and uh, I, it's, he could even move up more quickly than that. I, you know, there's certainly a need given the position. Uh, it's not an area that they're very deep in. Uh, and, and they're excited, you know, because uh, especially because he got off to such a slow start and then came on really strong. I mean, that was, I think, more than anything. I think they felt like the adjustments uh, really opened up some eyes. Uh, so I, you know, I, very unlikely that we see him in Oakland this coming year, um, barring some sort of major injury issues. But the following year, I don't think it's crazy. So, uh, you know, it, he would be 21 at that point. That's that's not way out of line. It would take some really solid years, obviously, um, and going to Midland and then going to Nashville probably this year and, and really – and continuing to show the improvement that they would like to see, but it, it's not crazy to think sometime next year. My final question, Susan, uh, I'm going to ask this of everyone who comes on with us for the American League teams. What's the most compelling either player or storyline that you're looking forward to covering the most uh, with the Athletics in 2016? 
Wow. You know, they always have so many, and they're, they're such an unusual team. Um, certainly, uh, there were a few last year that really jumped out, and those guys are gone. You know, Pat Vendetti was a, a big one going into the spring everybody was looking for. And, uh, you know, kind of after that, after you've seen the guy throw with two arms, everything is uh, uh, a little bit, you know, like less exciting maybe. But Sean Doolittle's return to health, I think that's going to be a huge deal for the A's. We'll be keeping an eye on that all year. Uh, and the continuing development of Marcus Simeon. I mean, it's, it kind of goes under the radar, but, um, you know, you touched on it. If, if he can be a solid major league shortstop, I think the A's actually might be in better shape than people might imagine. Pat Venditti, I completely forgot about him. How fascinating <laughs> was he to watch in person? Oh, that was so great. I'm going to miss him. Um, I, I, you know, I hope he winds up in the big leagues again with, with Toronto this coming year because uh, it's really it's, uh, it never gets old seeing a guy suddenly like, just switch, switch the glove to the other hand and turn around and, and throw the other way. It's, it, it was great, great. And, you know, really is a, a, one of those fun little kind of platoon advantages that the A's love. I was, was a little surprised that they let him go, but uh, that's all right. I, I wish him well. I think everybody wished him well. Also a great, great, great dude, too. So uh, he's got a lot of fans in the Bay Area, that's for sure. And once again, the, the Toronto to Oakland connection is alive and well. No, it sure is. So I think we're going to see more of that. <laughs> Susan Slusser of the San Francisco Chronicle, thank you so much for joining us. You can follow her on Twitter. That's at Susan Slusser. And now let's send it over to Ben Lindbergh to wrap things up. Okay. Thank you to Claire McNear and Susan Slusser for coming on today. You can send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com and join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. Sam and I have a book coming out soon. It's called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. And it's about our experience running the Sonoma Stompers last summer, an independent baseball team. Official release date is May 3rd, but if you pre-order at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever else you pre-order books, you might get your hands on a copy a little bit sooner. You can rate and review and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, and you can support our sponsor, The Play Index, at BaseballReference.com. Use the coupon code BP when you subscribe to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Have a nice weekend. We will be back on Monday with the preview for the Miami Marlins. What's mine is yours, please. What's yours is mine. It suits us just fine.